go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 tonight. It's a lot of time. I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, I'm sure we'll find something. Acts chapter 2. All right, so Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, um, you have a definite transition period. Jesus has just ascended up into heaven. Uh, he commanded his now 11 disciples to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for God the Father to send the Holy Spirit. Pastor uh, kind of hit on that some in John chapter 14 today. Uh, Jesus promising to send another comforter, to send the Holy Spirit to them. And they are, they're just kind of in a holding pattern. Uh, Acts chapter 1 tells us that they continued daily with one another, and they prayed, and they were just waiting. Um, Jesus, uh, Pastor kind of alluded to this tonight too, if you remember Jesus, the night he was betrayed, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his 12 disciples. Now, you need to understand that in Jerusalem, in the springtime, I believe they had three, four-ish feasts that they would celebrate. They had the Passover, and the Passover was this one, this one night, but it was also kind of connected to the, uh, uh, the feast of, I believe it's unleavened bread, which was about a week long. So they would celebrate unleavened bread for seven days. So you had the Passover... You had the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days, but then they had the Feast of Weeks or Harvest, and it was seven weeks long. It was 49 days. And on the 50th day, they would celebrate Pentecost, and that's where we start chapter number two. You also need to remember this, that at this time, people came from all over the known world. The Passover wasn't some just little thing that took place every year. Um, one, one thing that I read said that at this time, the population of Jerusalem was probably twenty to 30,000 people. But at the time of Passover, they said it was anywhere from uh, about 170 to 180,000 people in the city. And so when Jesus Christ was crucified, this was not some private event. When he was tried and convicted and beaten and scourged and taken to the cross, there were mobs of people. There were people everywhere. And so now in chapter 2, we come to the day of Pentecost. Jesus rose from the grave. The Bible tells us he was seen of the disciples for about 40 days. They went back to Jerusalem, and now they're waiting about 10 more days. And on the day of Pentecost, God the Father is finally going to send down the Holy Spirit. And this is a major event. This is not some little, you know, God did it back in the closet and just kind of gave them the Holy Spirit. And no, no, no. God does this in a big way. God makes a show. God is going to remove any kind of doubt that the Holy Spirit has come and that these believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that they have received power from on high. And God is this is going to be a definite circumstance, a definite situation, and God's going to put a big exclamation point on it 
So there's no doubt that this has happened. Um, and there's still thousands of people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And so we're going to see that as we get going. But anyway, chapter 2, verse 1, notice what it says. It says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, so they're on this 50th day, it says they were all with one accord in one place. So they're all still together like Jesus told them to be. And it says in verse 2, when suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. So here they are. Now, I don't know if this is the 120 that is mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 15, when they found a replacement for Judas. I don't know if this is the 120 disciples or if this is just the 12 disciples. I don't necessarily know who this is, but they are all together sitting in the house, and there's this sound of a rushing mighty wind. Now, we've, we've heard wind. We get plenty of wind here. And they hear this rush of wind in the room. They can't necessarily see it, but they can hear it. I'm sure they could feel it. But there's this rush of wind. Verse 3 says, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. I have no idea what this looked like. The disciples, I'm sure, are taken back. This, this wind comes rushing into the room where, where they all are. There's these cloven tongues of, that look like fire above each and every one of them. And this, this is an out-of-the-ordinary circumstance. This is, this is exceptional. Verse 4, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak, notice this, with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now listen, this does not mean that they all began gibber in gibberish. What this means is they all began speaking in different languages, just randomly. So here are the disciples. They're together in this room. This wind comes rushing in. There appears these cloven tongues as a fire that sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let me ask you a question. Do you think you would forget this situation, this event? No. No. God does this in a way that is extremely obvious to the disciples. The disciples aren't sitting up in the room going, yeah, I think this might have been it. I don't think there's any doubt. I think God does something here that is obvious, that is concrete, that these disciples can look back on, they can remember, and they can say, hey, I, I know what God did. And so here God sends the Holy Spirit down. And so now in verse 4, it says that they were all speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And that brings us into verse number 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, here's the thing. Jewish followers of Judaism had made a pilgrimage, if you will, back to Jerusalem. They had come from all over the known world. You're going to see that starting in verse number 9, verses 9 and 11, that people came, 9, 10, 11, people came from all over the known world. North Africa, they came from the, the Far East, they came from Asia Minor, up where Turkey is. Some came as far as uh, Greece, and then in the Arabian Peninsula. All that little horseshoe around the Mediterranean Sea, people traveled back to Jerusalem for these festivals. 
So here, these people are in Jerusalem. So listen, the sending of the Holy Spirit is not just, it's not going to be just a private thing with the disciples. It's about to become a public thing. It's about to become a thing where the entire world is aware that something has happened. That's what's about to happen here. So verse 5, there were dwelling at Jerusalem devout men out of every nation under heaven. Verse 6 says, now when this was noised abroad. So listen, people start talking. Hey, something happened. This is getting noised abroad. People are talking about this. It says the multitude came together and were confounded. They were confused. They were dumbfounded. They didn't know what was going on. Notice why. Because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Here in this event, like it said in verse 4, the Spirit gave them utterance in all sorts of different tongues or languages. Now, all these people that have traveled from all over the world are hearing these men speak in their own language. How shocking would that be? How shocking would that be? Now, I don't necessarily think that this is the gift of tongues. I think this is a special circumstance. If it's the 120 or if it's the 12 disciples, whoever's in this group, I don't necessarily think that these all men had the gift of tongues. I think this was a special circumstance where the Spirit gave them utterance, and because of the crowd that was before them, they were able to speak in multiple languages. Now listen, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we could probably spend months studying, preaching, and looking at different passages of Scripture and 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 going through what is called pneumatology. That's the study of the Holy Spirit. We could spend a ton of time. I mean, it is a massive subject. But I do want to say this. There are those who believe that speaking in tongues, because of this passage, they believe that speaking in tongues is the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The way they know that you have received the Holy Spirit is your ability to speak in tongues, which I have a, which I have a problem with. I have a couple questions. My first question is this. Throughout the book of Acts and the New Testament, why is there not a single commandment to speak in tongues? First of all, my second question is this. If you go over to chapter 2, verse 38, Peter's about to preach a sermon. People are going to get saved. And when they ask him what they should do, he tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Nowhere in verse 38 does he tell them to speak in tongues. Nowhere. The other question I have is if speaking in tongues is so important, then why in the world in 1 Corinthians 14 does Paul tell those believers, I'd rather you prophesy than speak in tongues? And so I think there's this overinflated thought when it comes to speaking in tongues, and I personally don't even believe that it's a gift for today. I will, maybe this will muddy the waters, but I personally believe that the gift of tongues was something that God gave to specific individuals for this time because the gospel was new. It was being spread across the known world at that time. And there were people who didn't, they didn't speak all those languages. 
And I think God gave a gift to certain individuals so that way the gospel, the good news, could be spread. And now that we have the word of God, that's been cut off. But I will say this. There is a part of me that wonders. If a missionary was to go to some country that is remote and distant and has not the word of, doesn't have the word of God, I do wonder if God would move in a special way so that people could understand the truth. I do wonder. But I do not necessarily believe that it is a gift for today, and I definitely don't think that it's a sign that you've been saved and that you've been given the Holy Spirit. God promised when you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit. Uh, pastor preached on that today too. He dwells inside you. You can go back to 1 Corinthians, what was it, chapters 3, chapter 6, and you can see there that he lives inside you. Um, he even told the disciples there in John chapter 14, I believe it's verse 16, he said that the, the Holy Spirit was with them, but he shall be in you. So when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit. Anyway, so these guys now are speaking in multiple languages that they don't know. And people are hearing them speak in their language. So notice what happens in verse 7. It says, and they were all amazed and marveled. You would be too. You would be amazed. Saying one to another, behold, now notice this. Are not all these which speak Galileans? Now you say, well, what's the big deal about being a Galilean? Well, there's a couple things. Number one, Galileans, Galileans, however you say it, had a reputation of being uneducated. Now, Jesus was a Galilean. Nazareth is in Galilee. If you were to go back to uh, the book of John, um, oh, I think I wrote it down here somewhere. I did write it down, but I don't know where it's at now. But anyway, if you were to go back to the book of John, um, Remember, they asked, could any good thing come out of Nazareth? That was the reputation. Uh, they also questioned their, uh, their lineage and their Jewishness because they were in the northern part of Israel. They were above Samaria, where Samaria, Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They were Jewish and Gentile. So here, these guys in verse 7, their first thought is, these are uneducated men. They don't know languages. How is it possible that we're hearing what they're saying in our own language? That's because God did something exceptional, verse 8. And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born. So where were these people from? Verse 9, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia, and Judea and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia. So he starts off in the Middle East with uh, Parthen Parth the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites. They're all in that far Middle East. Mesopotamia, that's over there, the land between the rivers. Um, you have Judea, you have Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Now he's up into Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, Phrygia, Pamphylia. Now he mentions Egypt. Where's Egypt? North Africa. Cyrene, North Africa, right on the Mediterranean Sea. Then he mentions Rome. So now he goes as far as Rome. Jews and proselytes, Cretes, that's Greek, and Arabians, that's the Arabian Peninsula. So he hits that entire known world at that time. People had come from all over 
for these feasts, for the Passover, the unleavened bread, the Feast of Weeks, and now Pentecost. So in verse 12, it says, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. You know, it's amazing when God does something, you always have people that kind of wonder and they think about it. And then you also have those people that want to mock. They want to doubt. They want to make fun. They want to belittle. And here, God does something amazing. So notice what happens in verse 14. I almost, I have kind of like three or four points that have to do with being compelled. Um, and it just kind of hit me this afternoon with after pastor's message this morning. But it's interesting to me what happens in the rest of this chapter. Here these people are, they're mocking, and this is what they're saying. These men are full of new wine. They're drunk. And it says, but Peter standing up. Peter's had enough. Peter's done. Peter's going to come to the defense. Peter's going to stand up and set the record straight. So notice what he says. It says, Peter standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice and said to them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto my words. First of all, listen. Here, Peter demands their attention. He demands their attention. Listen, all of us are going to find ourselves in circumstances where when we stand up for what's right, we need to demand people's attention. Some of you kids, you go to school and you have classmates that behave in ways they shouldn't behave. They talk about things they shouldn't talk about. You have friends that do things they shouldn't be doing. And you need to stand up and say, hey, listen. And you need to set them straight. Some of you work with people like that. You're going to have you're going to deal with people that way. Sometimes you're going to have people that are going to be that way spiritually. When I was in college, I worked with a guy who would, he would take these, uh, these like sweatbands. It was kind of like a sponge. And it would go around your head, and then it had an elastic strap. And he would write a cross on that in Sharpie, Satan. And you'd wa we'd walk into work on second shift. We'd clock in, and we'd go into our area, and here he would come. Just antagonizing. Hey, Bible thumpers, what do you think of this? And da-da-da, just running his mouth. And there were days where it was like, yeah, I don't have time for you. I have work to do, and you'd ignore him. And then there were other days where it was like he'd say the wrong thing, and you'd just, like, let him have it. And listen, there are going to be times where you're going to have the situation, and just like Peter was compelled to stand up and to speak out, you're going to have an opportunity. You're going to be compelled to stand up and speak out. Take your opportunity. Take it and use it and say what needs to be said. So Peter stands up and notice what he says, first of all. First thing you have here is he, a very practical defense. Verse 15. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Peter says, listen, these guys aren't drunk like you're, like you're talking about. It's only 9 a.m. They're not drunk. Very practical. But then Peter is going to get doctrinal on them. And now he's going to give them a doctrinal defense. And Peter is going to preach a sermon to these guys. And it's kind of interesting. 
In verse 16, it says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. So take your Bibles, keep a finger here or something, go back to the book of Joel. Go back to Joel, it's in the Minor Prophets. Don't ask me to list all the books of the Bible. I don't know the songs. So you should be in the book of Joel, chapter 2. Put a marker there and go back to Acts chapter 2. And we'll go back to Joel in just a second. We'll read the Acts account, and then we'll go back to what Joel said. So verse 17 says, And it, count, and it shall come to pass, this is Peter quoting Joel, In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in, in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now go to Joel chapter 2, verse 28. You're going to notice that Peter left something out. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens in those days will I pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Peter didn't quote the last half of verse 32. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. When Peter quotes Joel, I believe that in the hearts and minds of these, of these Jewish followers, they're thinking of deliverance from their oppressor. They're thinking deliverance from Rome. So when they hear Peter quote Joel here in, in verses 17 through 21, and when he gets down to verse 21, and it says, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, that's Jehovah, that is their God, that is their unique God, the one and only true God whom they worship, they shall be saved. And I think for these, right now, they're thinking deliverance. God is going to deliver us from, from Rome. We're going to have our liberty and our freedom again. This is great. And Peter has led them to this point on purpose. Peter is about to turn the tables on them, and they don't even see it. Notice what happens in verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved of God among, among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. So he starts off first, he says, listen, Jesus, who God approved, God, oh, what's the word now? Leg legitimized? Is that a word? That God made Jesus legitimate through the signs and wonders that he did. 
it was very obvious that he was who he claimed to be. But guess what? Verse 23, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Here, Peter confronts them right where they're at. Listen, God established Jesus being God, being Christ, being the anointed one. But you, and not just you, God had ordained it before the foundation of the world. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the Bible tells us. This was no shock to God. But you, by your wicked hands, took him. You slayed him. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up, but he rose up from the grave, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be removed. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. For thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with, with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet. How do you know a prophet's true or real? What he says comes true. It happens. What David said happened. David was a prophet. What God had David write down came to be. And here, Peter establishes that, that David was a prophet. Prophet of what? The resurrection. The resurrection. Verse 31, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, notice this, ye hath shed forth this, notice this, which ye now see and hear. Peter right here answers their question. These men aren't drunk. What you're hearing and what you're seeing is God pouring out his Holy Spirit. That's what you're seeing right here. Verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. In verse 36, he concludes his sermon, and this is, the, this is the punch in the gut. He quotes to them the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, and I believe in their minds it was deliverance from their oppressor. We're going to call on the name of the Lord Jehovah and he's going to save us. But Peter's about to connect the dots between Jehovah and Jesus. Notice verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, notice this, both Lord and Christ. And right then and there, you look at verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Ladies and gentlemen, when he equated Jesus with Jehovah and Messiah, it cut them right to the core. This went right to where they were at. And now in their mind, Peter makes this conclusion, and they know what they did to Jesus. 
probably men of them, many of them stood there at the trial, and maybe they were there for the entire time of, the, of those feast days, and they saw Jesus crucified, and they participated in all the feasts and the festivals, and now they're there on the day of Pentecost, and now it clicks. Jesus is Jehovah. And Peter takes them there. Peter takes them straight there. So in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. That word pricked means to be cut or to be stung. They were stung in their heart. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful for God's conviction? Aren't you thankful that God convicts you and challenges you and shows you where and when you're wrong? You know why he does that? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. God, God loves these people right here. The Holy Spirit stings them right in the heart. It's all of a sudden their eyes are open. They know the truth. So they ask a question unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What an awesome question. I would be pretty confident if you asked pastor after the service tonight what you should do about something, he would be tickled to help you. But if you came to pastor and asked him how many people come to him and say, hey, what do you think we should do? The number is pretty small. Usually, you know what question he usually gets? What should I do now? That's the question he usually gets. Because usually we make our, people make their choice, and then after they've made their choice, they want to come get advice and help once it's all gone kaput. Here they ask a very good question. What shall we do? Man, I'll tell you what, that is an awesome question question to ask that is a great question to ask god god what shall i do what shall i do so peter answers in verse 38 listen i'm going to tell you right now if you ever have somebody ask you what what they should do be honest tell them give them the truth if you ever have an opportunity to witness to somebody and share christ and they say what do i do man tell them Lead them through that point of decision. Don't leave them hanging. Peter here in verse 38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Here in verse 37, I see that these people were compelled. Not only was Peter compelled to speak, but now the people are compelled to respond. The people are compelled to respond. And then in verse 38, once again, Peter is compelled to speak to them, to give them an answer. Repent. It means to turn. It means to change your mind. It means to be honest with yourself about where you're at and to turn away from it. Listen, the Bible is very clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. 
And listen, for somebody to repent, they have to be willing to admit that I am a sinner and I need a savior and they have to turn from their sin and turn to the savior. It's a very conscious decision and choice made by that person. It's an individual thing. You have to make that choice. But here he gives them the answer. And honestly, it's the answer for all of us. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you need to repent and turn to Jesus. Verse 39, he says, For the promises unto you and to your children. Uh, this is interesting to me. If you remember when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, the Jewish people told him, Let his blood be upon us and our children's children. There were, to be, there were going to be generational effects on the Jewish people because of the choice they made. And it was a very selfish, calloused, violent, bitter, angry, nasty decision that they made on that day to say, let his blood be on me and every future generation. That is just a crazy thought to me. So notice what Peter says here in verse 39. He says, for the promise is unto you and to your children and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord your God hath called. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, notice this, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, salvation, it is a personal decision to save yourself, to have yourself rescued. When it comes to salvation, forget everything else. Forget everybody else. Forget what people thinking. A person drowning in the ocean isn't like, well, I hope nobody thinks anything about me. There are no other thoughts. It saved me. When Peter was sinking in the water, he wasn't like, well, I really messed up and... Uh, Man, I should have stayed in the boat, and I don't really... No, it was, save me. And here, Peter gives them the same exhortation. Listen, you need to save yourself from this generation. You need to call on Jesus and let him save you. It is a dire situation. So verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls i can't imagine this invitation i definitely can't imagine follow-up three thousand souls that's amazing and here god publicly establishes the fact that his spirit has come here we see the spirit of god working in the hearts and in the lives of men and through men like Peter and the, the apostles to preach the word and to see souls saved. So now these new, these new believers are compelled. Compelled to do what? Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Verse 43, and fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Listen, I believe in verse 33, these wonders, these signs were just once again that establishing that God's spirit had come and that they were in a different, I don't want to use the word dispensation necessarily, but things were different. 
This was a different time in history, in Bible history. This was in God's calendar. This was different. God's Holy Spirit had come. They were performing signs and wonders. The apostles were, verse 44, and all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Ladies and gentlemen, this is how the book of Acts begins. This is a new time. God is, starting, God is working in a new way. And he's establishing that here in the beginning of this book. And what's interesting, I think I read yesterday or the day before that the Holy Spirit is mentioned some 60 times in the book of Acts. I read that some people have called, instead of the book of Acts being the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because you will see over and over and over and over again the Holy Spirit working in lives and through men. And here's the point. We need to let the Holy Spirit work in our lives. We need to be sensitive to his leading. We need to be sensitive to that still small voice that speaks, that compels us to do what he wants us to do. We have to be sensitive to that. Not only that, but Ephesians chapter 5, in, at the beginning of, of Acts chapter 2 here in verse 4, it says that they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 says that we're not to be drunk with wine, but filled with the Holy Spirit. That word filled means to be full to the filling. In other words, there's no room for anything else. Completely full. See, God doesn't want us controlled or submitted to anything but his spirit. He wants him to be the thing that we are concerned and consumed with. What does he want from me? He is what should fill us to the full. So be sensitive to him this week. Let him compel you. And when he does, just obey. Don't worry about the details. Don't worry about everything else. Just obey. Just obey. And he'll lead you. And he'll lead you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this, this evening. I just pray that you'd uh, bless our week, bless our night. Thank you for those that were able to be out. And Lord, I just pray you'd help, help me, help each and every one of us to be sensitive to your leading. In Jesus' name, amen.